Welcome back to another episode of Success is the System. I'm here, it's a bit echoey, we're in an aircraft hangar. I'm here with Andy Offer, OBE. Thanks for uh, agreeing to come on. Well, what can I tell you about Andy? Andy um, is CEO of The Blades, the world's only aerobatic airline, but he's been red one. That means he was the leader of the Red Arrows, uh, world famous, world renowned, um, a former RAF fast jet pilot, uh, 22, was a qualified flying instructor, works at uh, specialise in the business in oil um, uh, oil spill response, uh, has a contract for the UK's search and rescue, uh, and works with uh, military to do some special operations as well. We're going to get into all of that and more. But first, Andy, tell us about Andy Offer. You know what <laughs> what was growing up like? Where was growing up? Yeah. And uh, tell us a bit about your background, siblings, and uh, life as a kid. Yeah, thanks very much. The uh, well, I suppose for me. Uh, I grew up in a normal, you know, working class family. My, my mother was a bookkeeper. Uh, my father was a printer. Um, we lived initially in North London, moved into Hertfordshire. Um, I went to a normal school. I, I was fortunate to get a, an academic scholarship to a, to a private school. I didn't really like it, but that's what I did. Uh, and then I went to school. Um, I didn't really, I wouldn't say I loved school, but, you know, I could do school. Um, and actually all the way through my kind of school life, I had a fascination with aeroplanes. Uh, but I've got no, no, no military background. Uh, none of my, uh, well, I, think, I don't think any of my family were in the services apart from in the war. Uh, and so really I didn't have any connection with the military. Um, but my mother absolutely knew I had a passion for aviation and dragged me into the Cambridge careers office when I was probably 14 or 15. Uh, I remember it so well, walked into the, into the careers office and, uh, and the, the sergeant who sat there said, you know, what do you want to be, son? I said, I want to be a pilot. He said, yeah, they all say that. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and he said, but, you know, realistically, what do you want to be? I said, no, no, I want to be a pilot. And he said, okay, right. And then we started a, started a process. Uh, and that process really consists of, the, as an individual, learning about the, the forces. I, I didn't really know much about the military. I certainly didn't know much about uh, the Royal Air Force. I knew a lot about aeroplanes. Um, I was very lucky, you know, read up, you know, just, did my research, went through, you know, the kind of careers progression, ended up going to uh, Biggin Hill um, to do uh, selection for officer and aircrew selection. You have to be an officer to be aircrew, which I didn't realise also, but I do now. Uh, so I did that and I was fortunate enough to get, you know, offered direct entry pilot into the Air Force at the age of 17. So let me unpick that uh, uh, <laughs> a little bit. I mean, it's interesting how many successful people to me say, I was lucky, but you know, you were doing the research, you knew all the planes at that point, you know, there, there wasn't much people can tell you because it was a passion. Yeah, uh, I think, yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think that's true. I think that the lucky bit, you know, to be a pilot in the Royal Air Force, you've got to have 20-20 vision, you know, you've got to have the right ergonomics, your legs can't be too long, you can't be too short, you can't be too wide, you can't have hay fever. So that's the lucky bit, you know, you've got to be able to wrap, you know, rub, rub your tummy, rub, rub your tummy, pat your head, yeah. as well as have the right, that's the lucky bit, right? The rest of it, you can make your own luck. So you're, you're absolutely right. I'm in that actual interview with the guy, you know, who said, you know, I think you want to be a pilot. They all say that. The first thing he said to me, there were two pictures on the wall, one left, yeah. one right. He said, what's that? And it was a Buccaneer, which is a, a Royal Air Force plane. And I said, oh, yeah, it's, it's a Buccaneer. He went, oh, that's interesting. And he said, what's the other one? And it's, it was actually a tornado. I said, it's a tornado. He said, hmm. He said, what, you know, can you tell me what the swept wing of the tornado means? And I actually knew. And he was like, Okay, right, okay. I don't even know that terminology. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. right. So, but the point is, if you like, I was a bit of an aviation geek, if you like. Yeah. And so, therefore, he went, oh, actually, your aircraft knowledge is really quite good. 
Um, you know, you've got to have a level of academic ability as well. That's, that's a lucky bit, you know, whether you can work hard, but, you know, you've got to, when you do your aptitude tests at Biggin Hill, you know, they're all about have you got natural aptitude, yeah. not can you learn, right? So that's the lucky bit. So yeah. I, I feel lucky that I, I was gifted enough to have those attributes, but you have to work hard at them to make them work for you. But, and, and, and I also want to go back to the conversation with the careers officer. Yeah. Because, you know, so many parents, teachers, careers officers steal kids' dreams. Now, they don't do it with any bad yeah. intent. Yeah. That's not where they're trying to go. Um, but, or they just um, lazily stereotype. So, you know, the podcast we, that we put out today actually was a guy called Shaz Nawaz, very successful financial uh, 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 guy. But because he was Asian, uh, the careers officer actually said to him, and this is going back some time, but it doesn't make it right, said to him, do your mum and dad own a corner shop? You know, this assumption, or what, what can you do? I can play an instrument. Oh, you should be a musician. You know, it's like, it's really lazy. Yeah. Uh, and then when someone says, I'm going to be a pilot, they steal the dream. And, and when you said that, it reminded me of... Um, Sarah Green, a Radio 1 DJ, interviewing David Beckham at the age of 11. He was already playing for England under, under 18s or so. And, and she famously said to him, so what are you going to do when you're older then? And he said, I'm going to play for England. Yeah. And she said, oh, for, oh God bless him, you know. Yeah. yeah, but what if it doesn't work out? No, I'm going to play for England. I, I, I mean, I, I kind of agree. I'd say the same to my children. I think that the, you know, certainly at my day, our day, if you like, the education system sent you down a path and to go off that path was unusual. I think it's much broader now. But, you know, I, I was passionate. My school reports all just said the same thing, you know. If he only dedicated himself like he should to the where he should, i.e. to what we consider to be academic importance, yeah, yeah, then he'd yeah. do really well. But, you know, I liked, I liked football. I liked sport. I liked going out. I liked socializing. I liked fixing my car. I liked fixing all of those things I liked doing. You know, I did not, yeah. I was not purely academic. But actually... For the career that I followed, those rounded attributes are really important. I think that's true today. Yeah, and and you know, a good base level of education to yeah. me is like a good foundation to a house. You get a good foundation in, you can build anything yeah. on it. You can even change what's built above it if the foundation is solid. So get the foundation. But what was what what I'm really conscious of is, and you use the the word that comes up again and again and again and again. I was passionate. Don't ever miss out on kids passion if you can see that passion it is a thing you can see their eyes light up you know that you know they're excited the minute if they see an airplane and when you see an, a passion verging on obsession feed it support it you know tell them you need to get some you need to do your maths you need to yeah. do this you need to do that but so many um parents teachers careers i was just like inadvertently steal kids dreams and it's really sad to yeah see. I, th I think i think that's true and i think the other point that I learned, which was something that my parents taught me. It's about work ethic. Yeah. Because I think, you know, if you got a job, you know, my job was a vocational job. You know, I joined the Royal Air Force to be a pilot. You know, that really means you've got to be prepared to go to war if necessary, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's a vocational job. But to get that job, you know, there are, there are thousands of people that want to be pilots. That's great. And there are probably half of those who are capable of doing it. But it's their actual dedication to it that yeah. you've, got to, you've got to stick with it. Um, but I think that's true of, of most things in life. Agreed. You know, it's easy to do the basics, but if you want to be at the best of your game, you've got to be dedicated. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, you know, when I was reading out the sort of 22 qualified flying instructor, at what age did you have your license, your pilot's license? <laughs> yeah, so I was, when I, talking about that, that journey through to, 
becoming a Royal Air Force pilot. And when I was uh, doing that journey or looking at that journey, one of the schemes that the Royal Air Force did um, was a thing called a flying scholarship. No commitment to the Royal Air Force. Um, you basically, the Royal Air Force paid for you to go and learn to fly somewhere, right? And, right. Uh, and the reason they did it really was to, it sounds really decadent today, but the truth is what they actually did was weed out a load of people early. So I went and did a flying scholarship at the age of 17, um, literally finished my A-levels, went straight to a place called Stapleford Tawney in North London, just inside the M25 near Romford. Mm -hmm. And I did 30 hours flying and I absolutely loved it. I had my license by the time I was 17. Wow. And then, then I joined the Air Force post that. So that was the kind of realization for me. It's like, this is exactly what I thought it would be. You know, it's, it's enjoyable. It's, it's hard work. It's rewarding. All the things I wanted and thought, right, that's for me. And then after that, you go into the, the real system, which is, of course, officer training first, which is six months on its own yeah. before you start flying training. And, and then flying training is, you know, it is a, it is effectively a degree, a very specialised degree. You know, but, but I guess if you did all of that at 17, that's why you could be so qualified at 22. You know, one of the guys, we had a podcast with Dave Potts, who's the CEO for Morrison's, you know, 110,000 staff and what have you. He said he, he was running Tesco's biggest store at the time at, I think it was 20 or 21. I said, how'd you do that? He said, well, if you don't go to university... By the time most people are coming out of university, I've been working for four, five years. Yeah. That, that's, that, that's a career almost yeah. in some cases. So, yeah. and, and one of the things that I'm a big believer of and talking about a lot lately is, you know, we've got a lot of people who are finishing uh, standard school, 16, 17. They don't know what they want to do. But the danger is we don't, we don't urge them to do something. If they've got a passion Let's work with that passion. If they haven't, and Charlie Mullin said this in, in the podcast the other week, is that he believes they should either have a job, go to university, or go into a government-funded workplace apprenticeship. Yeah. Uh, in whatever field, because you can do retail, hospitality, care, nursing, uh, or, or a trade. But at least at an early age, they get a, a taste of working for a wage, earning an income, you know, getting a qualification, and getting some... Um, early experience i mean i think there's a i do wonder these days if because so many people go to university we look at a 17 year old and think they're still a kid but yeah actually, well i think for, for me personally you know you were a pilot yeah 17. yeah but the uh, yeah the, the, the balance is i think the you know the general you know more and more people go to university now than they did in my life 15 percent to 50 whatever it is now right so more people go to university and when i joined the royal air force i was um, in the minority being straight from school as opposed to a university graduate um the, the benefit of that is all the things that I've done, you know, I went through flying training, was selected immediately to be a flying instructor at 22. You know, yeah. I joined the Red Arrows at 20, I can't remember, 28, right? I was a leader at Red Arrows at 30. All those things were young, but it's because I joined straight from school. But the difficulty, of course, is it's, some of it was tough because as a, a young man, 18 years old, right, in a high-pressure environment, which is what it is, yeah, High pressure environment, high workload, quite a lot of stress. It's quite a lot for a young man to take. And, and I remember thinking, this is really hard. It's probably a little bit easier if you've got a bit more maturity. But then what you reap in, in yeah. later years no, is exactly if you cope with that, then actually you're on the front foot going forward. And that's, and that's, that's what And I think that's been. right. And you don't want to burn someone out or put them under so much pressure it buckles them. By the same token, uh, you get the opposite of that, which is now called snowplow parents, yeah. where they clear the way all the time, make sure the kids don't even have to trudge through the snow in case yeah. they get the little pinkies yeah. cold or something. And I know that we're talking to extremes here, but if you can accept 
that pressure, stress is okay as long as it's not pushed beyond a level of ability to endure. Yeah, and the things you say, you know, we, we run an apprenticeship scheme in an engineering firm in Lasham, and it's the best thing, right? They're, because if, if they want to be engineers and they start young, they're going to fly they're, and they have the ability to fly because that bucket of experience that you're pushing in is yeah. worth so much more um, as long as you know what you want to do. Well, and clearly you did. So take me from 22 flying, so 17 pilot in the RAF, dream job, <laughs> yeah. flight uh, instructor at 22, yeah. red arrows at 28. How did you yeah. go so quickly to be a red arrow, which I think, you know, British, we're proud of them because they're British squad. But, you know, they're recognized globally yeah. uh, as the best, probably. Yeah. The, 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 again, if the, there's luck and, uh, and ability, right? Or three, three attributes, I would say. So, you know, one is the luck bit. You know, to, to be a red arrow, uh, you must be a fast jet pilot. You must be above average. And you must have a certain amount of hours under your belt, if you like. So, um, you know, I joined the Air Force uh, young. I was a flying instructor on my first tour. That's good and it's bad. I didn't want to be a flying instructor. I wanted to go to the front line, but I ended up being a flying instructor. They call it creamed off because they take the people who've come top and send them back to be flying instructors. From there, I went through the flying training system after my flying instructors course. When I was a flying instructor, I was actually, while I was a flying instructor, I won a thing called the Wright Jubilee, which meant I was a Jet Provost display pilot in 1989. I was 23. Um, fantastic opportunity, but kind of introduced me to display flying. Uh, I then went back through the system, became a frontline. So as you go through flying training, you know, um, you get selected to fly fast jets or helicopters or multi-engines. I was fortunate to be <coughs> selected or I worked hard to be selected as a fast jet pilot. I flew Harriers. And then you must be rated when you're on the front line as a Harrier pilot as above average, um, which I was fortunately done. Of, that happened to me. And then I could apply to the Red Arrows. And I applied to the Red Arrows in my day, about 40 or 50 applicants uh, every year to the Red Arrows, and they select three. And it's a week-long selection procedure, which consists of flying test, so flying ability, um, an, an interview, which means, you know, you should be able to research for an interview. But really, it's being with the team for a week. And at the end of that week, because you all live in each other's pockets for three yeah, years. I mean, when you're flying tip to tip, at what, how fast is it you're going? Oh, 400 miles an hour. 400 10 miles an hour, apart. you've got to be a team. You're a team. You're, and that's yeah. true of you know, any sport, you know, any, high, any high performance team, that's a key attribute. So you know, that journey was really quick and um, it felt really quick. It felt like five minutes. So as you say, I joined the Royal Air Force aerobatic team in 1995 for my first tour. And then so at the end of that, 1998 uh, roughly, you know, on... 30, 32 years old, having done, you know, four tours, you know, flying instructor, two frontline tours and a Red Arrows tour. You know, I achieved, in my view, like, wow, you know, what else, what else can I do? Yeah, um, you climbed your Everest almost. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I was, you know, I was proud, but also I felt like I worked hard. And then actually before I left the Red Arrows, the way that the selections for the leader works is the anyone that's been in the Red Arrows, they get promoted to a certain rank. Because you... I remember reading you you went something like red two, red four, red eight, red one. Yeah, so the, the team, the red ones at the front in my day and the other guys are team members. So, And I was a team member like everybody else and they're, they're all the same, the eight other pilots. The leader though is selected having been in the team, having been promoted to the next rank. He is then chosen by kind of the Air Force board, if you like, to represent the Royal Air Force League because it's all then about whilst flying is important, it's much more about 
presenting properly yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the the key ethos of the Royal Air Force through the Red Arrows aerobatic team, and that's the job of the leader. And then I, I and I got that job before I left the team. I left the team, went away for a bit, came back, but I already knew I had the job. Brilliant. So then I went back to lead the team, as you say, from for two thousand and two thousand and one. So the podcast is called Success as a System, uh, and a lot of people think, oh, you know, I haven't got what it takes, or how did this person become successful in what they wanted to do. This person win a gold medal, make a million pounds, whatever the success is in their chosen area. What, if, if we get to that point, what systems or approaches or behaviors kept you at the front? Because was, was it like raw ambition? Was it, was it focus? Was it clean living? You know, or did you go out and get drunk with the boys? <laughs> it it definitely wasn't or, clean living. So, the, uh, but, the, but people, I think, need to understand this because yeah, yeah, sure. they think they've got to live the life of a saint. No, sure, or, sure. You know. The thing about the, um, you know, a lot of people say that, right? So uh, this is why I say fortunate, right? There, there, there's an element of right place, right time, you know, right job, blah, blah. That, that is all true. But the, the, core, the key things that you, you've, you've kind of highlighted them already, uh, you know, for me personally, you know, you have to work hard. I didn't mind working hard. It didn't feel like hard work, okay? Because I was passionate about what I was doing. But you have to, you have to work hard. You, ha- you have to be dedicated, right? And then you have to carve out your path, you know? Yeah. For me, when I joined the Royal Air Force, I remember it so well at 18 years old, basically I wanted to get through flying training every day because every day is a test. You have a driving test every day, right? right? right. And, um, and that lasts three years, right? So I just wanted to get through flying training. Worked hard to get so through flying training. So literally a thousand days on yeah, it's a it's a long old slog, um, and it and it's hard, right? And uh, but you know, work hard, play hard. Play hard is part. You know, if you go to war with people, the same people that go to war are the same people that have a few beers in the bar, fall over, and you know, do those kind of things. same people. And that bonds you as well. It bonds, it's it's a really important the, the, you know, the teamwork. It's, you're not a stiff, clean living. You know, you can be, but the general mold is a team player, right? Yeah, and, uh, the team player. The guy. And I think you sometimes see more of a person or a colleague when when the, the the barriers are dropped and i'm yeah. not saying you have to get drunk to do that no, no, no. but sometimes when you're tired you've had a little bit of drink you've relaxed a bit they see the real person you see the real person yeah. you connect at a different level sometimes that's why the red arrows uh um, selections a week because it's very difficult to hide yeah. for a week yes yeah. <laughs> right so the which i think is a very a very good point but i think that for me i never joined the royal air force and said i'm going to be red one in 13 years i'm going to join the royal air force and be a pilot that's number one right then as I went through flying training, you know, and I think, oh, actually, I can do this. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm actually okay at this. Or I want to be a fast jet pilot, you know. And when I'm a fast jet pilot, I want to be a Harry pilot. And when I'm a Harry pilot, now I want to be a weapons instructor. Now I want to be the display, I was a Harry display pilot. Now I want to be a Red Arrow. Yeah. That's kind of, that's how my brain works. And, and that's a really important system to get because, you know, the, the old cliches of a, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, Correct. you know. People say to you, how do you run a marathon? Because I'm not built for marathon. I've done six. But how do you run a marathon? How do you climb Everest? Or I haven't climbed Everest, but I've done, I've done uh, Camp 2, done Kilimanjaro and Aperna, the ruins Ori. So, but, and, and when you're doing it, what you say is, yeah, I didn't suddenly run 26 miles. Yeah, yeah. I struggled to run four. Yes. And then I did a 10K, which was six. And then I did a half marathon. And this is over months, you know, bit by bit. Or, you know, when, you, when you're doing mountain climbing, it's get to that peak. And then... I don't think I could ever get up there, but I think I can make it to the next peak, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it is that set a target, get to your first goal. Because if you think I'm going to climb Everest, you, you, you would give up before you even started because if someone said to you at 17, even though you had ambition and belief, 
you probably wouldn't have believed you could ever no, be red I, one. I, I, didn't, I didn't believe that. And I must admit, going through flying training, there were some days I didn't think I was going to complete flying training. Right, right. But that doesn't mean I was going to give up and not try. So, you know, and that, you know, so having achieved, you know, when you're red one, you think, oh, well, you've achieved everything. But I still hadn't because my next thing was, I want to command a frontline squadron. And yeah. uh, I actually left the Red Arrows command job one year early because, <clears throat> you know, I was effectively phoned up by the desk officer and, and said, you've got a couple of choices here, Andrew, but our advice is if you leave a year early, okay, on promotion, um, then you've got a really, really good chance of commanding a frontline squadron. And I yeah. went, is it guaranteed? They went, of course it's not, but you've got to and, stack the cards. And there is a point at which, you know, I mean, it was clearly hard work. It clearly took a lot of skill, a lot of focus, a lot of learning, but it all sounds fun to now, you know, aerobatics and everything else. Suddenly, you're going into a real war yeah. and, and dangerous scenarios, yeah. and you became a Harrier squadron commander. Yeah, so, I, I mean, my, my, my trade, you know, in the Air Force was a fast jet frontline pilot. That was my trade. So I was a weapons instructor. That's what I did. Uh, I, everybody remembers your three years in the Red Arrows. Where I, I served yeah. for 20 years, right? So the, um, I did five years in the Red Arrows. So m the majority of my time was flying on the front line, but people forget that. So I did finish my command tour in the Red Arrows, I did a staff tour, and then I went back to the front line to command a front line Harris squadron. And the dates of that were, were 2003 to 2006, yeah. which of course was post uh, the towers falling down. So was, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, um, which, you know, was unbelievably rewarding. You know, the, the Red Arrows, you know, fly around the world, you know, having an amazing time as an ambassador, yeah. front line, go to war. Being uh, shot as, at. As a front line squadron commander is... You know, rewarding in a very, very different way, but an extremely rewarding way. And th those are the, you know, of the two things that I've done, I'll remember those jobs in the Royal Air Force, you know, right up there, you know, frontline squadron commander at war and, you know, commanding the Red Arrows, you know, two fantastic jobs. And, and so you've you done that. At what point did the idea to set up the blades <laughs> yeah. come about? Because now you've got your, your own business, 2XL, uh, so commercial business, um, uh, Coast Guard, uh, search and rescue, but in between the, the military and that, you had the Blades, which is the world's only aerobatics airline. Yeah, Tell so, us a bit about that yeah. idea, how it came about. Well, you know, that couldn't have been easy to raise money no, for. No, no, no. Obviously, like you've got a, you got you got you got the Red Arrows background. You know, that's a, that's you know. So there's a flying display team, and uh, and if I had a pound for every time someone said if you could bottle this and commercialise it, you'd be a yeah, millionaire yeah. kind of thing. You know, that's kind of a, a seed, if you like. But also, you know. There's a few things that happened, and if, if you want to know what they were, my sister worked for Charles Foley, which is a Porsche dealership in uh, in Barbican, and um, she we, she took me to Portsmouth, I think it was Portsmouth, where they they had a um, a powerboat which was sponsored by uh, Porsche. I remember thinking that's cool, you know, talking to the yeah. guy, and he said, uh, you know, they, they kind of he, pro he was probably the I don't know, the commercial director or the marketing director, and he was saying, you know, it's you know it's great, we love it, we get a lot of branding, and we'd love to do it in planes. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's an interesting concept, yeah. um, and then latterly, you know. Over a period in the old days, you know, there, there were private display teams. Um, the Marlborough team, if you remember, Rothman's team, uh, you know, the Toyota team, all, all really good civilian teams. Um, and when I was in, I think I was in South Africa with the Reds on my first tour, I met a, um, a couple of guys flying pit specials uh, that were uh, branded by Shmurnoff. And um, they were doing, you know, just basically shows around Shmurnoff branding. And at the time, my, my good friend from school was the... Um, accountant for IDV, the brewery who owned. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's the connection. And I rang him up and said, you know, 
what do you, you know, what do you know about this? And he said, oh yeah, we'd love to do that in the UK. This is one of about 30. So um, I contacted them and said, I put a proposal together. You know, like, you know. If, is that Diageo now? Just I think it is Diageo yeah, now. Yeah. And, I, and the proposal, when I look back, it was Heath Robinson, but the concept was the same, right? You know, I'm, I'd like to buy two planes. I'll get the planes, you know, I'll brand them in Schmerloff and blah, 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 and we'll go around the country doing it. And actually, I got some traction. They said, well, we got the red squares and we, you know, Schmerloff was not, you know, Red Bull and vodka was not, yeah. th- 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 but it's gone mad. So they've done a good <laughs> job. And uh, they said, we would like to have a look at that. And I was like, oh, okay, this could actually work. But then I got the job as leader of Red Arrows, right? So yeah. then I went, so then I stayed in the Air Force for the next so sort of six back years. Burner back burner. But during that time, that seed was there. And so the last kind of five years, my business colleague, Chris Norton, who was, I joined, started flying Harriers with Chris Norton in 1991, did the weapons instructors course with Chris Norton. You know, we both got kids. And both of us, the thing about the Royal Air Force, which is wonderful, he was the commander of one squadron, Harrier squadron. So both of us kind of the front end of promotion, you know, doing well at the yeah. front end of the, of the pack kind of thing. But both of us who have families, when you spent 20 years in the military, it's hard for your family life. It's hard. Also, the career progression through the Royal Air Force is a process. There's no short, there's no short circuits. You can't suddenly become chief of the yeah. air for 38, right? And, um, and both of us were kind of the same. It's like, well, we've had a great career, which we had. We're going to go to the staffs now, go to MOD, live in London, blah, 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 blah. Or do we pitch our wits against the commercial world you know, let, let's out into civvy street yeah, what, what, yeah. what do you reckon and we're like mm, how, how will we do that and i you know rolled out my dusted off my business plan from you know 10 years ago and said well i had an idea to do this yeah and then we evolved that for about our last four years in the service um yeah thinking over a beer a glass of wine chat 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 and in the last year really we did it seriously so you kind of wrote a proper business plan which said buy four of these you know we needed a million quid yeah. um and then we'll set off on a journey we found an angel, business angel, basically. He's still here today, Harren C. He's the third, uh, third of the, th- the three of us own the third, a third, a third, effectively. Um, he was the guy who put the money in, uh, in you know, investor parlance on a punt, right? Okay. And Good if you punt. ask him today, he'll say, I did it because of the people, not because of the, uh, the business plan, effectively. And we started our journey. We started with four airplanes and six people. We've now got 30 <laughs> airplanes, 500 people. And that's a really <laughs> important system as well. You know, so many, I was sat on... Um, lots of investment platforms. I've had my own investment platform, done lots of SEIS and EIS investments and early stage and so on. And so many people think, I've got the new Google, I've got the new Facebook. And and they think just because it's a good idea, one, they're not the Google or the Facebook probably, but two, you're looking at the person. Have you got the right team? And if it's a manufactured team, because you're not just looking at the individual, you're the individuals, you're looking at how married together they are. And clearly you and Chris already had uh, a connection, a bond, and you'd shown that you could work together. You could work really effectively together. Uh, you knew warts and all about each other. And often that's been the thing. I see lots of individual uh, talented people, but they're not a team. Yeah. And, and I that think, can destroy a business yeah, if they're not a team. I think what I've learned is that everybody has ideas, right? And which loads of my friends say, oh, I'm going to you know, stop. And I go, great, right? You, you'll know this better than me turning an idea into reality is really hard, right? It's just yeah, hard, yeah. right? But you've got to do it. It takes so, more money, takes yeah. longer than you thought, yeah, harder work. it's harder work, right? So all those things accepted, but that's, that's what Chris and I, we are dogmatic, that's what we do. You're absolutely right. Every, the other thing people said to me was, it's not really good doing it with a partner. You know, you'll end up falling out. We haven't fallen. We've fallen out loads of times, right? We've never fallen out, if you know what I mean. So yeah, we yeah. bash heads, but we never fall out. 
that's that's a really good point as well. But interesting enough, if you speak to any marriage guidance, because it is a form of marriage, they say we don't worry about the couples that squabble and argue. Yeah. We worry about the ones that have got to the point where they just can't be bothered to argue anymore. Yeah, yeah. If they've stopped talking, that's when it's dead. Yeah, and I think as that's, long as they're squabbling, that's all right. Yeah. So, and then if you then apply the same kind of approach to two XL, which was incremental growth, and there's some luck, right? So. The things for us, both the crash, financial crash of 2008, right, made our business fly. And now when you're in, you know, when the public purse is, is really stretched, then out we provide similar services. And because we've grown up through austerity, that's, how, that's the, the time we've grown up in. We haven't got big glass-fronted buildings. We provide yeah. similar services for a fraction of the cost. Guess what? We're really busy. So take, And take me through that. So you've gone... From um, <clears throat> pilot, military, red arrows, front line, into Civvy Street. And a lot of people struggle with that yeah. still today. There's a lot yeah. of charities needing to support people in that transition. That's successful. But it's, it's aerobatics. How do you move from that into a really solid commercial where you're doing oil spill response, yeah. you're doing special operations, you're doing search and rescue you know, that must have had a lot of networking, a lot of understanding that it's not just having fun in a plane. It's about building relationships. It's about putting the plan together, showing that there's a commercial uh, value to it and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think you've said all the things that, 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 that I've learned, right? So I don't really fly planes anymore. And the aerobatic team is, you know, tiny, tiny, witty proportion of our business. Our business is a business, right? Yeah. The, the assets are aircraft. The assets are doing a job. Those jobs are critical to government infrastructure generally, um, or to oil and gas, or to the MOD. And we provide those services, whether it's like a hotel or a, they're just assets. Yeah. So what I've learned is standard business, right? So what we've learned is that in today's world, which is certainly the public sector is short money, you need to provide high quality value for money services that with good relationships yeah, yeah. and we, you know, we keep those relationships by providing good services and our business has grown, you know, it's 25% a year, you know, pretty That's much. Fantastic. Um, and it's primarily that, that growth is caused by if you took the public sector as was pre 2008 or going forward, there is less and less money and the same requirements for those services. But, but I think what was evident to me when, um, when we had a meal a few weeks ago, you know, over a few pints and chatting away. And I'm always like, every day's a school day and I'm trying to learn and trying to get to know people and that. A lot of people don't realise what they're doing that's right or what they're doing that's wrong. Now, as a behavioural profile, a doctor of education, I'm kind of trying to weed all of that. But I guess on some spectrum somewhere because I can't kind of not be doing it. I can't switch off in that sense. But what was evident was that you were moving, you were, you were looking ahead and thinking, where next? Where next? Yeah. Because I know when, when we were talking, you're even now with search and rescue, you're looking at drone um, technology, you're looking at how we can move beyond piloted planes to where's the future going, where's the tech going, who's got the best tech, where in the world has got the best tech, how do we evolve? So, And that's the problem. So many people, they want to stay where they are, where it's safe, where it's known, and then they're not taking the next risk. Yeah, I think the next risk. We, we look... <clears throat> five years ahead, right? So, you know, so the way that search and rescue is done now is a, is a system. It's no longer, you know, it, traditionally in the military, yellow helicopter puck people out to sea, that was search and rescue. Now it's a system of command and control, uh, drones, helicopters, and fixed wing, all linked together with ma- mountain rescue and RNLI, right? It's a yeah, system. Yeah, yeah. 
That system is, has been thought about for six years. The system is going to be implemented in 2024. Yeah. We've been thinking about it since 2017. Yeah. So the reason I think we won, we've won the contract with our partners, Bristow, is because that was our plan. Our plan wasn't to go, we're going to provide you 10 helicopters. We're going to provide yeah. you a system. That system approach will provide you what you need and good value for money to the taxpayer because it's sufficient. When, you that, could, when the fixed wing can talk to the RNLI, can talk to the mountain rescue, can talk to the helicopter. It's all joined up. It's all joined up as one system. That, but that requires a long-term strategy. Yeah. Right? So, well, and that's the point I want to make because I spent, I spent a lot of time, I mean, I mentor about 46 different businesses, between 40 to 50 is my sweet spot at any one time, and I'm looking at them. The biggest challenge I have with business, especially established business, is getting them out of today and the past. They're either kind of suffering with imposter syndrome of something that happened in the past, I'm not good enough, I had the wrong upbringing, and that's holding them back, or they're caught in a problem of the past that they've not let go or rectified, or they're firefighting every single day. And whilst I understand that you've got to be dealing with the issues of the day, one of the things I try to say is at least 10% needs to be in the future. And they say, oh, yeah, well, 10%. And I say, are you doing 10%? And I say, well, I, I, I don't know. And I say, well, let me put it into context for you. If there's five days a week, and most people in business are working more than five days a week, but if there's five days, that means at least half a day every week needs to be three, four, five years in the future. What are we going to be doing then? Where are we heading? Where might we go? And there might be choices, but so many people aren't even looking three months ahead, let alone three years ahead. And I think that's where, as we all know, especially when you have kids, suddenly that 10 years has gone by, not, yeah. not, not 10 days or 10 weeks or 10 months. It goes like that. And if you're not living at least 10 or 20% of your time in the future and adapting, evolving, planning for where you need to be, you will become outdated very quickly. And so clearly uh, you and Chris were, were doing that. Was that from external advisory? Was that the military training? Or was that just always looking for the next... I think it's a combination of all those things. And when you said all those things that you shouldn't do, everyone does that too. We fire, I, you know, we feel like talking to you today. We firefight regularly because sometimes we have to, yeah. but we, we do try and look ahead. Okay. We, and the good thing about there's three of us, myself, Chris and Harren are the originals. We've got a board of five, <clears throat> but the original Harren is wealthy enough that, you know, this, it wouldn't affect him if this, if this were to fail. So he can have a very long view. Right. And he, He's very good he's, at saying... He's not anchored by the, uh, the problems of today in the and, same way that you might be feeling. And he knows nothing about aviation, right? Nothing. He's a property man. Yeah. So it's, he has a, a refreshing view, right? Well, and that's a great segue as to why I, and, uh, you know, have a bias here. As a mentor, I say that's the value of having someone who is emotionally unattached. Yeah, agreed. Who is financially unattached. Agreed. So and I'm going to focus on what, you, what should happen irrespective of what you might be experiencing. Yeah, and I think the other thing that you should, that I think Chris and I are both like this, actually, we're quite open-minded. So, you know, I love listening to people. I, yeah. I, I love it. And I'm, I don't get offended. I'm, you know, I don't mind what people say because, you know, advice is free, right? And you can take it or you can leave it. But what you shouldn't do is shut people down, right? So I, I try and listen to everybody because there are so many people out there with so much experience yeah. that why wouldn't you listen? Um, and I think that we, we've tried to do that. Uh, so we try to look a long, a long way ahead. We try to listen. We try to shape our business with a long-term strategy. We have a vision and strategy. We try and follow it. Um, and we try and remind the company to follow it. Yes. Uh, and in that way, people can stay kind of focused on what we're trying to achieve over a period. I mean, it's super impressive. And we haven't, 
I'm conscious of time, but we haven't even got into your VIP charter, so it's not all small planes. You've got 757, 737? Yeah, we've got, we've got two 737s that do VIP charter, and what charter does for this, our company is primarily providing special operations to government services, generally. And so we pro provide a 727 flying all spur response. Today it is flying uh, in Djibouti, that's where it is, doing a job, but that is a, they, it's a, an availability con. It doesn't fly very often, right? Um, so we must provide for our, the rest of our company, who you know, engineers, pilots, ops, you know, rampies, everybody needs to practice every day. Our airline, which VI, two VIP 737s, they make good money, but basically they fly every day all around the world, taking football teams and pop bands and God knows what else. And the point is we're running blood through the veins of our company using our charter airline, right? So... Um, the charter airline is great. That's exactly what it does. But the majority of our business provides a specialist service, which sometimes is low utilization. And if someone just Googles 2XL, they'll find all of those services, on, all that, those services. on that website. Yeah, um, I, I am conscious of the time. And, and when, when we had uh, a meal and a few pints, uh, it was lovely to be doing that in your son Ralph's pub, yeah. the Georgia Dragon, just yeah. outside Uppingham. Great pub. He's clearly got a business head on him. Yeah. Uh, and you must be a very proud dad. But what's really good is that it was clear that you were there to support, but you weren't stealing his dream. You weren't telling him what he needed to do. I'm sure you, you occasionally give him your opinion. That's a fatherly thing to do. Yeah. But um, if you were looking back at any child of 17, uh, that's not fair, young adult of 17, uh, man of 20, uh, person who's 40 and thinks they want to change a career, what would you be saying to him? What, what three things do you think are the most important for uh, success, satisfaction and fulfillment? So, you know, if, if we, we've covered this through this, through, through this chat, right, but the, uh, my, Ralph is my son who has the pub, okay? That was his passion, right? Didn't go to university, followed his passion. Therefore, so passion number one, that leads to dedication, right? Because he's dedicated in what he does. And you can see that, you know, I can see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And I am proud of him for, for, you know, he's dedicated to what he does and he's not afraid to give it a go. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, and I say to him, I try, you know, like, as any father should, you know, try and let him make the mistakes and recover them himself if he can, help him with advice if I need to. But if those things that he does, that as one example, um, are attributes that are applicable to all. Um, so passion, dedication, yeah, p passion, uh, de dedication. Well, if, if, and hard work, I would say, but yeah. you know that's probably the same thing. But passion, dedication, and hard work, um, and 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 listen, you know, if I'm forward, yeah. and listen to people, right? So, uh, I think again, that's a really useful thing to do. That's incredible. I, I well, literally, I could talk for hours, but I know we we uh, we, we said we wouldn't take up too much of your time. Love to come back at some point in the, in the future. Uh, and I hope you've enjoyed the session too. If you have, please like, share, subscribe, and we look forward to seeing you again on another episode of Success is a System. Thank Thanks you. a lot. That was good. Brilliant. Hopefully that wasn't too painful. No, it's fine. Uh, and, and I think you're fine. I mean, from my point of view, are people always worried about clickbait or, or stuff like that. I mean, if, if you want your comms guy to see it before, you know, I think you feel it, that we, we don't do any of that because if I clickbait it or, or try to catch anyone out, I won't get any more blood. No, it's, it's not. It's not about that. It's just making sure that the company are aware that we've done it. What I wouldn't want is to, it, for it to be yeah. uh, without the company knowing that's it. So, no, no, no. So I'm fine with that. So it's it's not. Good. It's not about editorial. That, 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 